0: Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. If you're a regular, you'll know that we've been doing a series over the last five or so weeks on cultivating a generous life. You know that when somebody like a pastor stands up and says he's going to talk about generosity, everyone immediately thinks, oh, here we go. Um, the church is trying to raise money, God's trying to raise money. Well, God's not trying to raise money, God's trying to raise kids, and he's trying to raise kids that look just like him. And as we've explored this series of generosity, one of the things I've said is that there are various mediums of value, various mediums of exchange. And generous in your finances or with your material resources, only one avenue or one medium of generosity. In fact, you can be you can use finances to prevent yourself being generous in another way. So if somebody wants your time or your, uh, uh, your attention, it's, it's sometimes easier to give them 20 bucks or 50 bucks and send them on their way, rather than become relationally involved with them. And so rather than being generous with a, a medium of exchange, you're actually using one medium of exchange to prevent yourself from being put at Uh, put out or or being costly in another medium of exchange. So over this series, we've tried to talk about different ways in which you can be generous with your material resources, with your words, Uh, in hospitality, you can be generous relationally in terms of forgiveness. I'm concluding the series this evening, and one of the fundamental undergirding principles of the series has been the idea that God is trying to raise kids that look just like him. And the obvious implication is that since God is generous, that we, his children, can and should be too. What I want to do is conclude the series with a message that possibly I probably should have started the series with because I want to talk about the generous God. Up until this point in the series, we have assumed the truth that God is in fact generous without looking into it in any detail. But what I did this week is just began to look at God as a generous person and I was quite moved by it and decided I'd finish the series, as I say, at a point that I probably really should have started it. So I'm suggesting that God is generous by nature. It's one of his attributes. Some of God's attributes are what we call non-communicable. In other words, God is, in essence, some things that we can never be. He's eternal, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, uh, he's all of the omnis, you know. Those things, you and I can never be. But there are other attributes, if you like, character qualities of God that he does intend to communicate and share with us. And of these communicable attributes, he never asks anything of us that he isn't first. So for example, when he says, I want you to be holy, it's because he is. When he says, I want you to be a people of righteousness committed to justice, it's because he is. And when he says, I want you to be generous, it's because he is. So by grace and through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, we want to be like him in these respects. So as we look this evening at God's generosity, it's my hope uh, and prayer that you'll be really touched by the fact that God is incredibly generous and wants you and I as individuals, and us as a community to be just like that. So what I'm gonna do tonight is, in three broad areas, I wanna consider God's incredible generosity. I wanna look at his generosity in creation, I wanna look at his generosity in redemption, and I wanna look at his generosity in terms of our ongoing walk with God. Now, those are massive areas, and before you panic and think, my God, we're going to be here until four o'clock in the morning, I'm just going to do a very brief overview of those areas. So number one, God's generosity in creation. Psalm 145, verse 16 in the message translation says, generous to a fault, you lavish your favor on all creatures. And then in Psalm 33, verse 5, the same translation says, earth is drenched with God's affectionate satisfaction. You know, when it comes to creation, God didn't cut corners. He didn't cut costs. I don't think even he adhered to a budget. The world is absolutely dripping with variety, with beauty, with splendor, with majesty, all of which speak of his incredible generosity. Wherever you look in creation, there's bounty. My wife Karen loves gardening and because I love the gardener, I've got to appreciate plants in a way that I probably never would have if I hadn't been with her. But uh, you know what, there's 391,000 species of plants Every, uh, that, that have been identified. Every year, scientists identify and, um, and research another 2,000 varieties. And then within those varieties, there's, there's m- massive um, added varieties, if you like. Within orchids, for example, there's another 25,000 varieties of orchids. You know, everywhere you look, you encounter this bewildering beauty and diversity. And as the kids would say, it's completely OTT. God didn 't just say, "I think I'll make a flower." it's just this incredible diversity. Look at the stars on a, on a starry night. It's absolutely breathtakingly beautiful. Those of us who live in cities rarely see the the beauty when When we first came to Hamilton a long time ago, we lived out at Fodafoda, which was you know, kind of 20Ks or 10Ks out that away and there's no streetlights. And I remember one night, Karen waking me up at about two in the morning and saying, you have got to see this. And I thought two in the morning, this better be worthwhile. Anyway, we went outside and I, I, I was speechless. The Milky Way was just a blaze and all I could say was whoa, words fail. You know, that galaxy alone, the Milky Way, it's estimated that there's between 200 and 400 billion stars, just in that galaxy. If every star has eight planets, like our sun does, that's about 3.2 trillion stars. And it's estimated that our galaxy is just one of over two trillion galaxies. I mean, it becomes mind-numbing. For every grain of sand on every beach and in every desert of the world, there are 10, thousand planets in the sky. If that doesn't strike you as being extravagantly generous, I'm not quite sure what would. You know, facts about the universe become absolutely mind numbing after a while. We just can't compute the distance, the the immensity of it. In Job chapter twenty six and verse thirteen and fourteen it says, The heavens are made beautiful by his spirit, and these are some of the minor things that he does. Minor things that he does. 3.2 trillion stars in our galaxy which is one of three trillion and this is the minor things that he does. Message says it's the mere whispers of his rule. One translation says it's the outskirts of his way and another the outer fringes of his work. If that's the minor things, if that's the outskirts, imagine what the major things might look like. You know, in preparation for the series, one of the things that I did was I looked up in the various translations every time the word generous occurred in the scriptures. And there was one passage that really struck me as being interesting. Again, it's in the book of Job and it's Job 36 and it goes like this in the message. Take a long hard look, see how great he is, infinite, greater than anything you could ever imagine or figure out. He pulls water up out of the sea, distills it and fills up his rain cloud systems. Then the skies open. Up and pour out soaking showers on everyone. Does anyone have any? Does anyone have the slightest idea how this happens? How he arranges the cl- the clouds? How he speaks in thunder? Just look at that lightning! His sky filling light show, illumining the dark depths of the sea. These are the symbols of his sovereignty, his generosity, his love and care. And when I read that, I thought, God is generous in terms of lightning. I mean, how does that work? I can think of a few people who have been struck by lightning who might choke over that description, that it's God's generosity. But being somewhat nerdish, I did a little bit of research to find out why would lightning be considered generous? Now I know that you guys have just broken up from college and the last thing you need is a science lesson. But, but you're gonna get one for about three minutes, okay? Just, just a really quick one. Because I thought, why would lightning be considered part of God's incredible generosity? You know, for, in order for life to exist and then flourish on earth, one of the things that we need is a very stable atmosphere. And with 21% oxygen and 78% nitrogen, we have that stable atmosphere. Apparently nitrogen and oxygen tie up their their electrons so they're not available for reaction. And that lack of reactivity between those two elements gives us the essential property of a stable atmosphere for life. But problem, not only do we need stability in the atmosphere, we need reactivity in the atmosphere. Our bodies need proteins and proteins need nitrogen. Now the atmosphere contains an abundance of nitrogen, easily enough to satisfy our needs, but it's not available to us because of the lack of reactivity. Apparently nitrogen has three electron bonds between its atoms and they're very stable and very difficult to break. So on the positive side, That stability, on the negative side, it means no reactivity, and our bodies don't have the energy to break up and thereby process the nitrogen that's in the atmosphere to build protein. Okay, so we can breathe in nitrogen but it has no effect on us. How can we get the nitrates that are essential for proteins and for life? And the solution, I found, is lightning. Lightning, as we all know, is the spectacular pyrotechnic show of light and sound. It's caused by the sudden flows of electric charges between charged clouds or between charged clouds and the ground. And lightning strikes on Earth somewhere between 50 and 100 times per second. That's a billion lightning strikes every year. And what happens is lightning strikes or or slices through the sky with such power and such energy that it has the effect of knocking the normally inert nitrogen atoms so hard that it separates it from its electrons and it makes it reactive. These freed up electrons and atoms are now able to combine with oxygen and hydrogen, and they form the nitrates that are necessary for life. They're brought to earth by rain, where they are then processed by plants, and the proteins are made available for people and for animals. On top of that, bacteria in the soil then process the nitrates and release nitrogen back into the atmosphere. We call it the nitrogen cycle. And that cycle is central to the biochemistry of the earth. A key component of it all is lightning. And Job, writing thousands, tens of thousands of years before scientists had discovered this said, lightning is the generous gift of God to people on the earth. You know, theologians call this incredible generosity of God toward his creatures, toward creation and toward people, common grace. Now, common grace isn't a Bible term. If you get your concordance out and try and find it, you won't find it. The adjective common doesn't appear in the Bible as a modifier of the noun grace. But because you can't find common grace in the Bible, it doesn't mean the concept's not there. In the same way that Trinity isn't found in the Bible in terms of a word, and nevertheless, the concept is there. So common grace then doesn't mean mundane or ordinary. When theologians talk about common grace, they're talking about something that is universally available to all. So theologian John Murray described common grace as every favor of whatever kind or degree, falling short of salvation, which is, which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God. You know, the Bible says all that we have, all that we enjoy in life has come down from the Father of lights. Every good and perfect gift, it says in James 1.17. And in 1 Timothy chapter six, it says, God richly provides you with everything for our enjoyment. And God has, through his incredible generosity, woven the beautiful, the delightful into our existence, the taste of good food, the sound of beautiful music. You know, for those of you who appreciate music, you know that it can stir and move and soothe and comfort and inflame and enkindle and evoke and elicit. It can lift you up. It can stimulate you. It can thrill you. It can transport you. That's music, and it's a gift from God's generous hand to you. We experience God's common grace in a multitude of forms, from art to architecture, from landscapes to literature. It's his generous gift to the world. I, I think that perhaps the beauty that's involved in God's common grace is ultimately to lead us to the experience of saving grace. So a Catholic theologian, Father Thomas Dubay, in his book, The Evidential Power of Beauty, says, beauty is crucial to the human enterprise because it triggers wonder. The acute experience of great beauty readily evokes a nameless yearning for something more than earth can offer. Elegant splendor reawakens our spirit's aching need for the infinite, a hunger for more than matter can provide. And when we see the beauty of the Milky Way or the gorgeous creation of some flower or some animal, we come to realize that this kind of art needs an artist. Random chance has never explained a waltz, a symphony, or an epic poem, it simply cannot. And that beauty in common grace is a powerful pointer to truth because common sense immediately perceives in it design and intellect. A generous cosmic artist is clearly at work, and so common grace is to lead us to saving grace. You know, the tragic reality in our world is that for many people, rather than being deeply moved at the beauty of God's common grace, we're too often focused on the things that we don't have or the things that didn't work out for us. And it seems oftentimes we barely even see the beauty that's around, it, uh, around us, let alone acknowledge it with gener- acknowledging that generosity with gratitude. And as a result, we live in a sense of entitlement and ingratitude and disappointment haunts people's lives. You know, the thing that strikes me about common grace, and this might sound rather silly, but it's the fact that it is common. It's it's available to all. Matthew 5, verse 44 says, "'I tell you, love your enemies, "'pray for those who persecute you, "'that you may be children of your Father in heaven, "'because he causes the sun to rise "'on the evil and the good, "'and he sends rain on the righteous "'and on the unrighteous.'" The thing that makes God's generosity remarkable, if not completely unique, is that he directs it toward the ungrateful, the unresponsive, and even toward those who consider themselves his enemies. Bill Gates, you know, from Microsoft, is probably one of the most generous people that's ever lived in terms of his material resources. Without wanting to be unkind, the man can be generous. He's has a, he has a network of around 72.7 billion dollars. He's actually the 37th richest country in the world. He's given away over his lifetime between 26 and 28 million dollars. But you know, as far as I'm aware, he's never given one dollar to Apple. Gates is known to be quite ruthless in terms of his dealings with competitors in the tech industry. Some of you younger people probably have never heard of Netscape, but Netscape was, at one point in time, um, it had a 90% share of the browser market on the internet. But Gates and Microsoft declared war on Netscape and effectively exterminated it. So while he's phenomenally generous with his resources, you'd say toward his enemies, maybe not so much. I'm kind of glad that God isn't Bill Gates because he loves people whether they're evil or good, whether they're righteous or unrighteous, he even loves his enemies. Luke chapter 6 verse 35, love your enemies, do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back, then your reward will be great and you will be children of the most high because he's kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. You know one thing about common grace that we don't often think about, we think of the positive things that he provides in terms of beauty and variety and the splendor of our creation, but another thing about common grace that we fail to appreciate is that God generously restrains evil. He proactively restrains sin and wherever possible protects people from it. It's that generous restraint, by the way, you might look around and think, well, he's not doing a very good job of it because our world is pretty wicked in places. Well, as I said, where it's possible, given that we live in a world of freedom and free choice. Nevertheless, God's generous restraint prevents society from becoming altogether intolerable and ungovernable. Over the years, I've had people say to me, well, I don't understand if there's, a God, if, if, if there's a God, why are there wars? Well, quite frankly, if there wasn't a God, there'd be a whole lot more. You know, in the book of Revelation, as God starts to pour out his judgments in the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, it says the seals affect a, a fourth part. The, the trumpets affect a third part. And you could say, well, how, how could God, the loving God, judge a quarter of the population or a third of the population. Listen, it's his incredible, generous, common grace that he doesn't judge three quarters and that he doesn't judge two thirds. He spares wherever it's possible. Okay. God's generosity and creation. What about God's generos- generosity and redemption? Psalm 130 verse seven says, Israel, wait and watch for God. With God's arrival comes love. With God's arrival comes generous redemption. The Living Bible says God comes with armloads of salvation. In the book of Ephesians it says, because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross, we are free people, free of penalties and punishments chalked up by all our misdeeds, and not just barely free, either abundantly free. He thought of everything, provided for everything we could possibly need. That's the incredible generosity of God in his redeeming grace toward us. I suspect that most of us here tonight know at least in some degree firsthand The generosity that God has shown to you in redemption. The Father generously sending the Son, the Son generously coming, the Son generously sending the Spirit, and the Spirit generously coming, and then the Spirit generously giving out gifts and ministries to the people of God. If we believe, and of course we do, that Jesus came to do an exposition of the Father's heart, you know, John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. The, the Greek has the idea of Jesus has brought out in the open and shown us the Father's heart. Remember, Philip said, show us the Father, and Jesus said to him, Philip, have you been with me so long and you still don't get it? If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. In John chapter 1, verse 14, describing Jesus, it says, The word became flesh and blood, moved into the neighborhood, and we saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like Father, like Son, generous, inside and out, true start to finish. You see the generosity in Jesus when you see him ministering. Just just look at his miracles. Take, for example, the first one that's recorded in the Gospel of John, where he turns water into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, we know about the quality of the wine that he produced. Remember, the master of the banquet said in amazement, everybody I know brings out, out, out the f- finest wines first, and after the guests have had their fill, they then bring out the chief stuff. But you've You've saved the best to last. So we know about the quality of the material that Jesus produced, but what about the quantity of wine that he produced? It says, nearby stood six stone jars of water, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. That's 180 gallons, and for those of you who are used to metrics, that's 680 liters. That's about 1,000 bottles of wine. That's two pallets of wine for this wedding. That's, that's incredibly generous. And I'm sure perhaps you're aware that in a culture like that where hospitality was so important, running out of wine would have been a point of incredible shame for this couple and, and an embarrassment for, us, for their family. Jesus not only averts generously a possible catastrophe for them, but the amount that he produces probably meant that they had a considerable amount of wine left over after the festivities had concluded, giving them a significant financial resource for their lives going forward. That's incredible generosity. A little further on in John chapter 6, we have the story of the feeding of the 5,000. The 5,000, by the way, were men, Okay, so the crowd itself would have been much bigger. If their crowds are like our crowds, the women usually outnumber the men in religious circles, and you add the kids to that, you could have been dealing with 15,000 plus people. And starting with five small barley loaves and two small fish, Jesus feeds the multitude. At the end of that, in verse 13, the disciples gathered up the leftovers and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over from those who have eaten. The Passion Translation adds one basket for each disciple. And I can imagine the disciples struggling down the hill with their basket full of bread saying, that was a bit over the top, wasn't it? A Couple of baskets would have done us one basket each. It seems that Jesus can't help himself. He's just generous inside and out, as John 1.14 says. What about in Luke chapter five? The disciples had gone out fishing without much luck as it happens. Jesus decides to give them some help and in verse six it records that they took such a large catch that it began breaking their nets. They called their partners alongside. They brought in two boats. Between them they managed to get it on board and the boats start to sink. It's been calculated that they probably took in about a tonne of fish. What they would normally have taken in a two week period came in one cast of the nets. Jesus just can't help himself. When it comes to generosity, he is generous inside and out. And it's not surprising because we know he's God in the flesh, and one of the Old Testament names for God is El Shaddai, and we know that El Shaddai basically means the God who is enough, the all-sufficient one. What that literally means in the Hebrew, many scholars think that Shaddai comes from the Hebrew word breast, and that the word could literally be translated the many-breasted one, which means that when you need sustenance and succor, you can go to him and there is ample. He has more than enough. We are talking about an incredibly generous God. He's generous in creation, he's generous in redemption. And as you continue to walk with him, one of the things that you begin to appreciate more and more as the days, months, and years go by is his unbelievable generosity to, to us. And let me finish by just very briefly talking about some ways that he's generous. In Nehemiah chapter two, verse eight, it says, the good hand of God was on me. He went to ask the king for, uh, he, he went to the king to, to making a request, and it says the king granted him the request, and he says it was because of the good hand of God on me. And the message translation says the generous hand of my God was upon me. God's favor in this instance was on Nehemiah in the same way that was on Joseph in the Old Testament. Remember the favor of God in Joseph meant that he rose to the top of Potiphar's household and then he rose to the top of Pharaoh's household and he was a gifted individual but the way open for Joseph was more than simply his diligence, his talents, his gifts, his intelligence. It was recorded as being the favor of God. I want to tell you folks, when opportunities and doors open for you, you, you need to recognize that it's not just about your brilliance, your giftedness, your talents or your intelligence. God opens doors and he shows people favor. You know in Nehemiah chapter nine and verse 19 through 22 there's a passage there, I won't read it all, but at the very end of it it says you gave them kingdoms and peoples establishing generous boundaries. I think one of the testimonies of my life has been Psalm 16 verse six where it says the lions have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance and I can look back over my life and it's been, it's had its moments, it's had its really dark and difficult times and yet, in all of that, I see the incredible favor of God. And friends, you do well to remember that favor and be grateful for it. I remember one older pastor talking to a younger pastor whose church was going through a time of incredible blessing. And the young pastor was reveling in that success and probably was putting far too much emphasis on his role in what was happening and the older pastor wisely counseled him to acknowledge God's favor, and I remember him saying to that person, don't make God remove your hand, uh, sorry, don't make God remove his hand in order to show you the source of this blessing. Well, the young man dismissed the advice, and within several years, that blessing had stopped, the church had come apart, and the man had left the ministry, or at least left that portion of the ministry. When favor comes your way, recognize its source, the generous hand of God upon you. I think the thing that probably over the years I pray most for, in fact, we had a young guy in our congregation who did beautiful calligraphy and he said, Don, I want to write a passage out for you. I want to write a prayer out for you and give it to you as a gift. What do you want me to write? And I said, I covered above all God's favor and his friendship." Those are the things that I long for. I long for his favor, I long for his friendship. And when it comes, be careful to say thank you. I know where this comes from. Another way that God is incredibly generous to us is in the way that he guides us. And again, you know, I'm, I'm looking back over the years and I can, I can tell you times when God led Karen and I and our family in ways that were truly supernatural and. Very, very remarkable. And I, I, rem, I just think of the incredible generosity in the way that God has led us. In the book of Ezra, chapter seven, verse nine, it says, Ezra had scheduled their departure from Babylon on the first day of the first month. They arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month under the generous guidance of his God. God is generous, he's willing to be generous. That doesn't mean he speaks every two and a half minutes on average. You know, he will, he's a good father. He knows how to develop you as an individual. He's not a controlling, you know, a control freak who pulls the strings. He lets you make decisions. He lets you grow up emotionally and in every other way. But there are crucial times when, in his generosity, he steps in and guides. One of those occasions happened to us earlier this year. We had a gentleman come from the States and spend time with our leadership team and and he he came with a word from God for us. And he said, um, it was out of the book of Genesis with Abraham. Abraham and Lots uh, had separated and gone their own ways and after Lot, his team had gone, God said to Abraham, I want you to look up and uh, And see the land before you, because i 'm renewing my promise to you, and the word of this guy to us was it 's time to look up, and that, that had been stirring in our hearts and, and uh, we, you know i 'd been, I'd been praying, Lord, you know what, uh, I, what does it mean for me to look up? I mean, I know I can physically raise my head, but what does it actually mean for me spiritually to, to begin to look up? And, and I, was, I was really praying about this and thinking about it. And a couple of months back, I, I went to Whangarei, I was ministering up there and all the way up, I, I, I was praying about this and, and worshiping and speaking in tongues and saying, God, teach me what it is to look up. And, and as I, about half an hour out of Whangarei, and you know, I'd been following this car, I didn't even take any notice of it, but, but I, I physically kind of looked up at the car and it had a personalized plate and the personalized plate just simply said, look up. And you know, you could say, oh, well that's coincidental. Oh, yeah, what a what a coincidence. Well, I've had way too many of those coincidences, and I know that God speaks in those kinds of ways to me. And I felt incredibly encouraged, in fact, I, I've got a, don't worry, I've got a hands-free system, so I quickly called Karen and said, hey, hon, you'll never believe what just happened. In fact, I'm still following this car. This guy thinks I'm stalking him. I'm so close to him. I'm trying to take pictures of the personalized plate, and he's wondering what's going on. But it says, look up. And I want to tell you, as you pray, as you cry out to God, he will be generous in the way that he leads. You know, we've been singing. Lord, I lift up my eyes. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. It comes from the generous God who's willing to show favor, generous favor, who's willing to guide generously, and who in Psalm 84 verse 11 says, he's generous in gifts and glory. He wants to give gifts, he's a generous God. He wants to share his glory with his kids, with his people. That was a problem for me in the early days because I used to think of the passage in Isaiah where God says, I will not give my glory to anyone else. I will not share my glory. And in those days, you know, I, I wasn't even sure what glory was, but I knew that he had it and he wasn't gonna give it to me. Until I read that passage, and I, and I noticed that what God was talking about was idols. He's saying, I will not share my glory with those idols. But in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying, and he's saying, Lord, I have come to show these people and share with them your glory. And it suddenly dawned on me, God doesn't share his glory with another, meaning idols, but you and I, who are related to him by redemption, are not another. We are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, and he wants to share his glory with you. You say, well, what does that mean? What is glory? Well, the Hebrew word simply means kabod, it's it's the word kabod and it means weight. Maori term would be mana, a weighty, substantial person. He doesn't want you to be superficial. He doesn't want you to be taken up with the BSOs of this world, you know, the bright shining objects that we all get, you know, uh, after the latest in, iPads, iPhones, everything that would distract. He wants to give you something substantial, something weighty, something meaningful about your life. He has that and He wants to give it to you generously. He will share with you His gifts and His glory. You know, we serve a God who is generous inside and out. You can see it in creation, you can see it in redemption, you can see it in your daily lives as you follow Him. He's so generous. And he wants to make you and I as individuals and us as a community a generous people just like he is. And so the purpose of this whole series has been to invite you into that generosity, to see it, to want it, to explore it, to practise it. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again. Check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.